मोहित एंड रौनक पाठक दे विल परफॉर्म सरस्वती वंदना एंड गणेश वंदना दे आर आवर ओन स्टूडेंट हिंदी यूएसए नमस्ते एवरीवन माय नेम इज मोहित पाठक और मेरा नाम रौनक पाठक है टुडे टू बिगिन दिस इवेंट वी आर गोइंग टू बी चैंटिंग गणेश वंदना सरस्वती वंदना अलॉन्ग विद शांति मंत्रास These mantras are comprised of various Vedic hymns, shlokas, and chants from sources such as the Bhagavad Gita, Rig, and Yajur Vedas, along with the Ganesh Tuti, composed by Jagat Guru Sri Adi Shankara Charya. जगत्सर्वत्सदा देवी वागधिष्ठात्री 
Namaste, dear friends, distinguished guests, Mr. Devend Singh Ji. Thank you for your very gracious invitation. Dr. Rajiv Malhotra Ji, Madam Indrani Ji, and all your dis distinguished guests here. I'm truly delighted that we are here to launch, to discuss the book by Dr. Malhotra, Snakes in the Ganga. I have the highest of respect for Mr. Malhotra's authorship, his scholarship. Last year, we had the honor and privilege of embellishing him with our Distinguished Indologist Award, which is instituted by the Indian Council for Cultural Relations, Government of India. It was a truly our delight to celebrate his scholarship at the consulate. What amazes me is his, the expanse that he covers from artificial intelligence, sociology, anthropology, politics, international relations, all captured together. And sometimes all the essence of all these different streams captured in just one sentence. That is how his deep, his understanding is. And I'm sure the book that he's written is going to do well among the readers, among people who think deeply, people who are thinking for the future, and more. Since I see a large gathering here, 
I am compelled to say a few words about India. We have a commitment under the visionary leadership of Prime Minister Narendra Modi to make India a developed nation by 2047. Some of you who follow economic history would know that Indian GDP in the last 25 years, so between 1998 and 2022, has grown nine folds. So somewhere around 400 billion plus to now three and a half trillion in 2022. If you maintain a similar trajectory, the next 25 years, you can imagine from three and a half trillion dollar into nine times or thereabout, that will be the size of Indian GDP. And in this journey, we cannot do it alone. We need support from all our partners, stakeholders, from United States of America, which is a great friend of ours, from thought leaders like Mr. Malhotra and several of our youngsters and people who have strong convening strength. We need your support. I wish Dr. Malhotra, Snakes in the Ganga, the very best, and we look forward to his deep leadership, to his thought-provoking leadership. Thank you very much. And the consulate stands ready to serve the community to its best of its ability. Thank you very much. Namaste. Dhanyawad.
morning, everybody. Namaste and greetings for this particular event. Young boys who's, who did the Ganesh Stuti, they talked about Shatru Bodh. That's a very important thing to understand. Along with that comes Swayam Bodh, that we have to know about ourselves too. If we do not know who we are, others define us. And that's the issue that I dealt with on and on and on and on when I was speaking to the world around here about India as an investment opportunity. I have addressed questions which have ranged from sublime to stupid about us Hindus. Why so many murtis? Why not eat beef? Why not everything else about us? It's so peculiar. We are different. That's why Rajivji's book, Being Different, is so important. And we are here to listen to Rajivji, whom I have known for a long number of years. And, you know, he has that power of writing, researching, you know, expounding the thought that must reach your heart and mind, make you think. So I have read several of his books. And uh, what I want to say to you is, he doesn't need an introduction to you. I don't need to say he's such a great guy, because he is. You all know that. So without much ado, I invite Rajivji to share his thoughts, not only about the snakes in the Ganga, but what threats we are facing as Indians. Where is the problem coming from? And what is the one question that I want you to focus on? Knowing what we know now, where do we go from here? That is the key question to answer. Gyan and knowledge is good, no doubt about that. Information is good, no doubt about that. What are we doing with it defines your character, defines your next stage. So without much ado, Rajivji, Everybody is waiting to hear from you. Let's give him a big hand. announcement people who are asking questions I sincerely request you to write your name as well as your contact details because it's important to have that identity because if we need a more conversation on that issue we can have so please do not hesitate to share your name and your identity thank you very much Rajivji all yours namaste everyone it's indeed an honor to be here before such a large, wonderful gathering. I want to start by thanking Devinderji who put this whole thing together because he, six weeks ago, six weeks ago, he was one of the guests at another event and he stood up and said, you know what? 
this is only 200 people, we need to have at least 1,000 people and I'm going to do it and he announced the date. I think most people thought it's not possible. But I must also thank the team he put together. They, they have had Zooms every couple, uh, few days and they keep, he's going on pushing them, uh, you know, making sure everybody's doing their job and there are so many people in the team here. Then he organized a whole lot of volunteers. Then he went and got a whole lot of sponsors. I want to thank all the sponsors who made this possible. And then he went around, the most important thing is he went around to many different organizations in New Jersey from our community who generally don't give their name to support each other. You, I get invites to go to this mandir, I can go to one mandir and give a talk. They're always very happy, go to that mandir, this one. But you know, they don't come together and they don't want to lend their name uh, to somebody else's event. But he's managed to get 15 or 20 of them all sponsoring this event. And I think that's a very good beginning to bring us together. So as I was thinking of what am I going to talk about, do I talk about the problems we are facing? Do I talk about the solutions? Do I talk about my works, the books that we've done and what impact they've had? Do I talk about the next four books we're going to launch next month in India? What do I talk about? So it's a little bit of all of this because some of you are new and I want to reach out to you to get you interested in the work we are doing. Some of you are very knowledgeable about what all our foundation has been doing and I, do, I want to give you what, what next, what is coming. So I'll give you a broad sweep, starting with the fact that this journey started for me officially, formally 30 years ago, although throughout my life I've been interested in these things. But for the first half of my adult life, I was a tech person. I came to this country to do a, a PhD in physics and then I switched to computer science and then I worked in IT in the corporate sector, then left the corporate sector, became a management consultant to the big tech companies in the world and then started my own companies. And uh, I left after I had created about 20 companies in many countries. And I left because I had a spiritual experience which convinced me that I should, while I'm still young, still have the energy, I should do something else rather than go making more money. So for about 30 years ago, about, it was in 1994 that we started our foundation and I gave up the for-profit sector from then till now, I decided that making more money, profit, salary, any of that is not of interest. And so since then, our foundation has been very active. The first part of the work was to give funds to other people to do the work. So I thought maybe I'll give grants to Harvard, which we gave for many years. We gave grants to Princeton University, to University of California, University of Texas, Columbia University. We started many programs before it was fashionable for Hindus in this country to fund this kind of research, we were doing it. But then I reached the conclusion that that's the wrong step after giving away a lot of money, that, that we have to do this work ourselves because they are not going to do our work. They will take the money and do whatever they feel like, which is not very favorable to us. So I was funding the wrong side. I was funding the people who are writing things not good for us and giving them money not going to change their mind. So then we, I became a scholar 
rather than a donor. So if you look up my uh, biographies, the way they were introducing me in the talks I gave 30 years ago, they would say he's a great philanthropist, which means writing checks. And then I removed that and said, you know, you have to talk about our scholarship. So then they started saying, okay, he's a great scholar. So the scholarship I learned on my own, because if you can learn physics and you can learn computer science and you can learn business, then you can certainly learn to, about your own tradition. Why not? And each of you, each of you, if you put in the time, money, energy, time mainly, or your time, uh, to really do this tapasya of doing research about who we are and take on the opponents and study and give them response and then be brave and uh, argue, you will become an expert. You will become a better expert than all the people who are writing about us because they are not part of our culture and they don't have the first-hand experience the way you do. So this is all I have done, is learn from within, learn from our gurus, learn by reading the Shastra, learn by meditating, and also learn by arguing with opponents. Study what their point is and argue how to argue back. So this becoming a scholar, you know, Scholarship, as I look at it, everybody has their own expertise. My expertise is not to collect a lot of facts and present them. I am not interested in collecting a lot of facts. We have a lot of facts, but I'm interested in a new way of thinking, a new lens, a new drishti, a new framework. A new framework is more valuable than just a lot of facts. So to give you an example, our opponents have created amazing frameworks. Marxism, is a framework about 200 years old, and it is not some information that he put together, but a way of thinking, how to think about society, how to, their Marxist drishti has, is a, looks at any society, any country, any period of history, and it has a certain way of analyzing and predicting what will happen and how to make changes. Then you look at another framework that they have, maybe Freudian psychoanalysis which is a way of looking at your mind and analyzing what's right or wrong. Then another framework is feminism. That's a whole new framework of looking at life, looking at society, and on and on. So the West has created a lot of frameworks. And now we have critical race theory, wokeism. That's a framework for thinking. So we need not just factual or translate this work or that work, but we need to create our frameworks, our frameworks which are useful for today. And so what I have been trying to do is to understand the Vedic frameworks because the Vedic Vedas are not just facts and mantras and chants and, you know, prayers, but they're also a framework, a metaphysics, whole framework of thinking. And, and I realized that there are two kinds of, generally two kinds of frameworks. The individual inner life, adhyatma, which in the West they call mind sciences, which means who are we? How does the mind work? The whole Patanjali Yoga Sutra is that. The whole Tantra is like that. The whole Buddhist thought is like that. All the ideas of the inner, inner self, how, you know, how voice, how, you know, even Vak has four levels. It starts from within as a idea, thought, then gradually it becomes outward. So all sorts of uh, profound concepts that are uh, rishis developed are frameworks. So when you look at, for instance, um, Jungian thought, Jungian th Jung is very important, very popular in the Western world now. Uh, but when you study Jungian thought, you realize that he actually borrowed Indian thought. 
in the 1930s, Carl Jung used to teach Tantra in Zurich, and there are books on it. He was talking about mandala. He was talking about yoga. So people of that kind have taken Indian thought, reformulated it in their own way, removed some things which didn't fit, and, dis and distorted a little bit. I call that digestion. So they've digested our knowledge into their own way of looking at it and made it part of the Western framework. So for instance, uh, many of you know Jordan Peterson is a very popular person in the social media, very powerful voice for the Westerners, and he calls himself a Jungian. But he has connected Jungian with Christianity and disconnected Jungian from with the way it started, which was our tradition. Jung himself wrote about our tradition. He went to India, wanted to meet Raman Maharshi, didn't meet, but he wrote about his thoughts on Indian philosophy. But after he left, his students and followers removed the references to India and they turned it into something Western only. So what I'm trying to tell you is giving you just one example of hundreds where framework is more important than fact, facts and information and factoids. So creating frameworks is what I like to do. I like to question the frameworks of other people and understand them and figure out what's good about them, what can I use, what is wrong about them, have they borrowed it from somewhere else, have they taken our framework and distorted it and digested it as their own. So in the process of looking at frameworks, there are two kinds. One is mind sciences, the inner frameworks, and one is social sciences, which is about outside. Social sciences has to do with society, jati, rashtra. There are a lot of frameworks like that in our tradition that we don't use, we, we people just don't use. But when, you know, I'm, one of the books I'm working on, and there's so many books I've still got to write, is called Rashtra. And when you look at the, I went to so many uh, scholars and said, you know, tell me what is written about Rashtra in our texts, Shastras. And nobody done a comprehensive survey. Somebody told me, I know about this is what it said in Mahabharata, and somebody says, I know this is what it says in Dharma Shastra. But I said, no, no, I want you to do a whole study on the whole origin of Rashtra idea. Where does it first occur? Now, I, it took me many years of searching, finding, talking to a lot of scholars. And I found there are 33 references to the word Rashtra in the Vedas. Vedas use the word Rashtra. And I'm surprised that nobody has done a there should have been many dissertations, many doctoral, you know, PhDs on the idea of Rashtra from our tradition. But there isn't one. I mean, I've had a discussion with uh, some friends in the RSS. I consider them friends. They are good friends, people at the senior level. And um, the uh, question I asked is, why is Rashtra as interpreted by RSS, after all, their name starts with Rashtra, Rashtra Swim Sevak Sound, and you would think that they'll be experts on Rashtra. But when I asked the question on Rashtra, it was sort of a modern concept of nation, borrowed from the West. But Rashtra is a very ancient concept in the Rigveda, from the Rigveda and the other Vedas. So I realized that nobody has really looked at that. We need to look at that. And so that's one of the frameworks I'm developing, framework of Rashtra. And by the way, uh, Rashtrapati is a wrong name for President of India. The right name would be Rajyapati, because when you look at the Vedic texts, 
they talk about rashtra and they talk about rajya head of state would be rajyapati because he's head of state that would be rajyapati rashtrapati would be a different kind of person so the we've lost our frameworks is what i'm saying these are these are important for us to rediscover bring them in the context of modern intellectual property so re rediscovering the ancient frameworks articulating them in modern vernacular modern jargon modern terminology and putting modern intellectual property into um, turning it into modern intellectual property useful for today that is the kind of thing i'm trying to do and these frameworks uh, have an encounter with the western frameworks the our frameworks have an encounter with the western frameworks because the western way of thinking is different their mind sciences are different their social sciences are different and when there's a confrontation when you bring your knowledge to them and they are the dominant culture they have the harvards and the princeton universities and they have all the think tanks and our own people are into using the western framework when you have this kind of uh, encounter there's a pushback there's a pushback because you are pushing people out of their comfort zone not only the people who made these frameworks in the west but indians who've taken them over borrowed them who are thinking like that most of our people from top politicians down to gurus also education system also certainly media are using western frameworks even hindu dharma has been reformulated to fit western frameworks we use words like mythology myth you know uh, we use which is there, there that there's no hindu mythology it's itihas and there's a difference between itihas and myth we talk about idols but idol is a whole different concept from the murti we talk about hindu gods but the devatas are a different idea from the, the, the judeo christian concept of gods you know so if you when you we talk about soul instead of atma but there's a whole difference there we talk about shakti we translate as energy but you know this electricity which is energy is not the same thing as shakti because shakti it's energy but it is intelligence and this is just energy it is also conscious it is also person so this personal personal in conscious intelligence with energy is a whole lot more than just energy so you know we are take using western frameworks all the time this is a major uh, issue that i i is a common factor common feature in the work that i like to do is study what are the frameworks people are using not argue about little data here and there but what is the framework what is the drishti what is their lens and what what about it what valid about it what's not valid about it give them credit where due but also question them and what would be our rishi's view what would be their framework not shloka here and there or something but what is their framework of thinking and if you really want to understand indian thought you must understand the brilliant frameworks that the rishis have created which most of them people are not most of those frameworks are just sort of obscure and people are not using for instance ayurveda is a whole framework of the human body it's a framework it is not that i will take this medicine this ayurvedic medicine is better than that it is not like that it's the whole framework of who is the body what is the body how what is disease how it starts what to do about it you know all of that is different framework so there are frameworks in every there are frameworks in mathematics frameworks in astronomy that are very distinct from our culture 
there are frameworks of grammar and language which have been uh, Pantajali's, uh, you know, or, or Panini's grammar, Ashtadhyay, became the basis for all European grammars in the 1800s. They learned this and they started, you know, formalizing the grammar of German and this and that based on their study of uh, in, in Sanskrit grammar. So if you look at the West study of Indian frameworks, it resulted in many, many influences on the West, including Christianity. Modern Christianity in the last 200 years adopted a lot of ideas which were not there in the earlier Christianity. And, and you'll find this in botany, you'll find this in uh, medicine, you'll find this in theories of mind and meditation and all these kind of things. So if we want to protect our civilization, we must protect the frameworks. Ultimately, the clash of civilizations is a clash of frameworks because the framework that you use uh, control will influence how you are thinking. If you're a lawyer, the law, the jurisdiction under which you will fight is so important because if you say we'll resolve disputes under the laws of the United States and state of New Jersey versus somebody who says we'll, any disputes will be resolved uh, in Beijing under the laws of China, it's a different framework. And if you, if you agree to resolve it under their framework, it will be a very different outcome. So the legal jurisdiction and the type of law determines the, uh, the outcome of your thinking the same way in physics there are different frameworks, Newtonian framework and Einstein framework are different. So what my research when I started becoming a scholar, coming from physics and computer science, this is how I was thinking. That in computer science, you learn that whoever controls the operating system has the power, not who controls the apps. So, you know, this is why the iOS from Apple and the Windows from Microsoft, neither one is going to say I'll surrender to the other because then they're out of business. And this is, these two and Android are fighting for market share because if you control, if you have a bigger footprint or bigger install base of your operating system, then you have that much more market. Apps you can put on anybody, but the one who controls the platform. And similarly on social media platform, there's competition on which platform you're going to use because that gives them power. Are you going to use TikTok as a platform or some other, you know, equivalent or a competitor? That will determine the outcome for those people. So in our, in the same sense, civilization is a platform. Civilization is like an operating system. Because which, in which framework of civilization are you going to argue? When people say there is no uh, social justice in China, the Chinese say, no, you're using the wrong framework, you're using a Western framework, we're going to use our framework. We don't want to discuss about human rights according to Western framework, we want to discuss human rights according to our framework, and according to our framework, we're doing very well, because we've advanced so much, we brought human rights, we've removed poverty, we brought education, we're becoming one of the powerful countries in the world. When we look at the collective, rather than the individual, which is what our frameworks want in China, then we are doing very well. And you guys are not doing well. So, so you know, the Chinese have become very good at fighting for their framework. We have not done that. Because in India, from the, I'm sorry if the, uh, you know, the Consul General is here, uh, I'm sorry, the Ministry of External Affairs, the diplomats, they're using the Western framework of uh, how to argue, how to reason. We haven't gone deep enough into our own Arthashastra 
and Dharmashastra to revive our framework about Rashtra, about foreign policy, about strategy. So in the social sciences and political science domain also, we have a lot of frameworks. And in the mind sciences, of course, we have a lot of frameworks and we need to revive these. And when we are reviving the frameworks, Buddhism is part of it, Jainism is part of it. They are not separate frameworks, they are just part of it. And we have to stop this business about, you know, this guy is Buddhist and I'm Hindu and all that. I have to tell you this. My own journey, intellectual journey, has relied hugely on uh, studying, uh, of course, the Upanishads and the Gita, uh, but also uh, Buddhist thought, uh, Madhyamic Buddhist thought. Uh, also, I studied Sri, Sri Aurobindo's interpretation of Vedas, which is very different. Also, Tantra. So you have to study many ways of thinking in order to figure it out. And every time I got deeper and deeper into Buddhist thought, I would go back and get more meaning out of our Upanishads. Because the way the Buddhists are looking at it, you don't have to agree with it, but they do have some ideas, some points that open up our own knowledge deeper. So Indian frameworks is the central theme in all the work that I have been doing so far. Now I want to, and, and I also explain the frameworks can be broken into the inner sciences or mind sciences and outer sciences or social sciences. I'll tell you the how I started, got into the mind sciences. Around the year 2000 or thereabouts, IIT Kharagpur was uh, going to have its 50th anniversary. So a year or so before, they were looking for grants to hold some conferences and they sent a grant application to Infinity Foundation, my foundation, and I asked them for details. One of the conference th themes caught my attention. It was going to be on psychology, mind science psychology. And when I asked for details, there was not a single Indian model being uh, included. It was all Freud, Jung, all these kind of things they were going to talk about. So I wrote to the person in, who had applied for this grant and said that I will fund the entire conference on psychology and mind sciences if there is at least one panel on Indian models, which are very important. I still have a copy of his reply, the lady's reply. It said, sir, we are not chauvinists, we are scientists, we can't do all this kind of stuff. So they were, they thought I'm some kind of a chauvinist, asking for Indian mind sciences to be included. So I wrote back saying, but we have Patanjali Yoga Sutra, that is about mind. We have Tantra, that's about mind. We have Sri Aurobindo, that's about mind. These are some great thoughts about mind. All of Buddhism is about mind. There's nothing chauvinist. And the Shibu would say, sir, but nobody here will accept it. This was 20 years ago. Now, of course, they're all talking about these things. So what I did is, I knew they have a white complex, so I'll bring in some white people and they'll accept. So one person I talked to was Robert Thurman, Bob Thurman, who, is, who was a head of religious studies in Colombia, a very good friend of mine and a head of Tibet house. And he's a Buddhist, no nonsense Buddhist, he's going to no problem. So I said, Bob, will you go to India and talk about Indian mind sciences? He said, yes, of course, Buddhism is mind sciences and it all comes from India. I said, but you have to make sure 
You explain it like that. You don't try to westernize it and replace the Sanskrit with English. You have to show the Indian origins. He said, of course. Then I, have, I, I had a person we were giving grants to in Cambridge University. He had written a book on uh, translating and interpreting yoga. And so I asked him the same thing. I said, are you willing to go? He said, yeah, yeah I'll go. And then there was a Sri Aurobindo follower. Uh, he was in the in one of the, uh, uh, you know, he's a psychiatrist in uh, New York. And he's a great follower of Sri Aurobindo. And I had told him, will you go and talk about Sri Aurobindo's mind sciences? He said, yes. And then a friend, uh, Stuart Sovatsky, who's a Tantra scholar and a psychologist and so on. He now lives in Yogi Amrit Desai's ashram in Florida. So I called him, I said, Stuart, you've always, I've always told you that you need to return, give back to the mother civilization that taught you all these things and this is your chance. Are you willing to go to India and do that? He said, yeah, yeah. So I got each of them to write me an abstract, a proposal of their talk. I sent it to IIT Kharagpur saying, these guys will be my panel. If you are willing to put them, I'll fund it. Immediately they accepted it. Because these are white people after all. So must be must be okay. Now it's okay. Now it's okay. We don't have to be embarrassed because some white people coming and saying that we are, we are good people. We are good because white people are putting the tapa on us. So they went and they got a standing ovation. And the, the Kharagpur people wrote to me that this is the most popular panel of the whole conference. So we thought, you know, we got an idea. So then invites came from Kerala Psychology Association. I told these guys, go, I'll fund you, go, because we want them to see. Then they got an invite from Pondicherry. They thought, wow, these guys, we should invite them. Indian felt for our, everybody wanted to invite them. So Infinity Foundation for 10 years, we kept sending this, these people and we kept adding more people also. Finally, the big climax was when Delhi University Psychology Department, which was considered to be very ultra-left and very secular and stuck in their ways, when they had a conference, because we sent these people, and that conference was called Indian Theories of Mind. Indian Theories of Mind. At that time, uh, Sunit Verma was a very young assistant professor. He's now, I think, head chairman of the department or something. He's very senior. But this is 20 years ago. He was a very junior guy. And he was a Sri Aurobindo follower. He was championing my ideas, taking it to his seniors, call me and say, I think this guy will support it. That guy will shoot it down. I'm too junior. Maybe we write to this. I mean, all this strategy we had to do for the internal politics just to get Indian theories of mind into the Indian universities. That's what the fight was about. I'm just giving you an example of the kind of things we've done. So then we, after that, we created an association of Indian psychology. And the 200 or plus scholars would come, and every year we would have a conference somewhere in India. We would sponsor it, and they would write proceedings. And so this is how this whole idea of Indian, Indian approach to psychology became a part. Now it's part of the curriculum. Now in every university, they have, uh, when they're teaching psychology, there is also an option to talk about Indian ideas of psychology. So this decolonizing, the framework is not easy work to do. It takes a lot of effort and um, uh, courage. And so that is what, uh, uh, that is what has taken me many years to, to keep doing. So I, I wanted to make sure I don't forget a few things. Uh, so this mind sciences, right now a book I'm doing on Indian mind sciences 
and the influence on the West. Uh, I've drafted, it haven't been published. Three volumes are just on Buddhist influences. Three volumes, 1100 pages drafted, just on the Buddhist part. So I have to yet add the Tantra part, the other many, many things part. And then I started realizing that many of the leading edge, cutting edge science institutions, technology institutions in the United States are actually taking Indian mind sciences and appropriating it. One of them is Harvard. Harvard has a Benson Institute started by Herb Benson. Now Herb Benson is an interesting person. In 1970 or 71, now he's, he just passed away a few years ago in his 90s. But in 1970-71 time frame, he came across Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's Transcendental Meditation and it was having effects on cardiology. So uh, Lakshmanji's field. The TM people, the Transcendental Meditation people, were the first to publish report after report that when you do this meditation for 20 minutes a day, morning and evening, it'll reduce your blood pressure, it'll reduce this, that, improve cardiology, all of that. And this was very big news in that time. Huge news. My God, without taking medicine, just doing this, you know, you can reduce. So it created a big sensation. And sure enough, you know, Westerners always go and want to capture it. So Herb Benson... Uh, started uh, a movement of his own claiming that he's come up with these ideas and in his movement he replaced the word he replaced om with one he said you need to say one one and you don't get rid of this om because hindu stuff and all and you'll get the same benefit and so he started doing some research using the tm technique what you do, how many minutes you do, you close your eyes, what you do when thoughts come, what you do when sensations come, all that technique he copied, but he replaced the mantra. And so he claimed that he's got similar results. But, and then he started a movement called the relaxation response. And he became a very big shot at uh, Harvard. Uh, he got millions of dollars of grants from the National, uh, the National Institute of Mental Health National Institute of Health, all these places, and the um, uh, big hospitals in, uh, in Massachusetts, Massachusetts General Hospital, all of them. And for the last 30, 40 years, they've been doing research, patenting, and calling it their own. No trace of transcendental meditation left. But the TM people were very angry that he's done this, but they're too embarrassed to come out and fight because he's very powerful. So I said, I'll do the fighting. You give me the data. So they put me in touch with uh, a man who is also now very old. He was doing his PA. He, was a, he, he is a Maharishi follower. He's a white guy, Maharishi follower, very loyal. And he's a doctor. He was a young fellow doing his doctorate on transcendental meditation effects on, uh, on cardiology and health and whatnot. And he was the one who, who Herb Benson approached, wanted to collaborate, and they wrote joint papers in which Herb Benson was a junior author. This guy who was TM for Maharishi was a senior author. So that's the smoking gun. So when later on Herb Benson started saying it's all original, got nothing to do with India, got nothing to do with TM, I discovered the original papers where Herb Benson was involved were on TM, 
in collaboration with the, with the other guy. So I made a big deal out of it. I brought it out publicly and saying that this whole legacy, this whole heritage, this whole claim to originality is fraud because this guy actually borrowed from India and he doesn't want to acknowledge it and now he's become a very big shot and so he doesn't want to acknowledge it. So this created a controversy. Of course, uh, I went and interviewed him for before he'd passed away, he wanted to come out and say all these nice things. So I have on tape, we haven't put it out there, but we have on tape long interviews where he's acknowledging his debt to India, finally. So you see, from being a philanthropist donor to becoming a scholar and creating our own frameworks was what I started doing. And then the next stage was that, hey, you know, I can't do all this alone and I'll be gone one day. So we need a team to continue the work. So I need to hire people, hire scholars. So we started with, with uh, uh, volunteers and they are doing good work. But then I realized that when you hire really good people, pay them money, pay them salary, and we have about a dozen of them in India and three or 14 people in the US, which is costing us the, uh, which is why we need the funding. So uh, doing it this way, we have, we're creating a team. And when you're creating a team and you're creating so much original knowledge about frameworks, then you are creating a school of thought. Marxism is a school of thought. Freudian psychoanalysis is a school of thought. Critical race theory is a school of thought. Feminism and gender studies is a school of thought. You see, we need to have Vedic mind sciences and Vedic social sciences in the modern context as a school of thought on par with all the other schools of thought. And we have to be able to export this by first establishing it for ourselves. That is the vision that I got when I started doing all this work. So the vision I have is that there are three things you need to create a school of thought. You need research. You need to mentor young people to continue after you. Otherwise, when you're gone, it's gone. You cannot be just a one-man show. You have to reproduce into the next generation. And you need an institution which has got a long life, which will continue this for the next 100 years. So if you have knowledge, content, original research turned into frameworks, which is my job, and then you bring in other people to continue this further, and then you have an institutional mechanism that becomes a school of thought, and that can become part of the curriculum. You can have one day, you can have MA degrees, BA degrees, these BS degrees in these kind of topics. Right now, you go and study liberal arts in India, social sciences in India, 100% of social sciences is Western models, Western frameworks. The IAS exam on sociology is full of Western. You look at the NCRT books. I'm doing a critical review of NCRT books in India on social studies is all Western models. And the Western models start with Marxism as the foundation. No Vedic model. So when the NEP, the National Education Policy 2020 came out, I like the STEM part. They want to encourage science, technology, all those kind of things are very good. I like it. But in the lip, they want to encourage liberal arts. 
and the liberal arts they are encouraging are not vedic liberal arts but harvard's liberal arts this is a very serious problem and they have brought uh, liberal arts into iits and iims they want to bring liberal arts into medical education idea being to make the technocrat more well rounded that's very good but well rounded with what so you are finding that now some of the worst problem worst opponents that i'm having to fight are in iit delhi iit madras because they are deeply involved with marxist liberal arts models and they've applied those marxist liberal arts models to uh, dalits to minorities uh, you know so they've come up with this whole marxist ultra leftist view of indian civilization and this is really the problem and to uh, flaw with the nep 2020 is that they should have first developed the vedic social sciences and then said okay these are the social sciences we are going to introduce in all these colleges without first developing our own platform and our own foundation our own framework just opening the door to liberal arts means that all these guys from the western education all the indians who got their training in these kind of western frameworks are the ones who are capturing the uh, the universities in india making the things even worse so the problems that we are argue, fighting here have been exported there so now it is going to happen in a bigger way in india itself which is not helping us but making it even worse so that's the that's the tragedy uh, of uh, not having funded and supported all these decades the thank you all these decades the study the proper study of uh, uh, vedic social sciences and vedic mind sciences and just importing whatever the west produces some of the stuff that the west produces is indian knowledge digested in, into western frameworks and sent back to india sent back to india so we take it as indian like for example you've heard of emotional intelligence the harvard guy wrote this book on emotional intelligence and it's considered a brilliant breakthrough and all these corporate people in india invite him and they give he gives talks about emotional intelligence okay and what you don't know is that when he was doing his doctorate in harvard he in on he writes and these are old archives you can dig up and i have dug up he writes that he's doing research on indian meditators and indian indian mind sciences is doing and he comes up that the idea of iq is as west has is very limited there is also other dimensions of intelligence there are many parts of intelligence and what iq is only one part and he wants to expand iq and he brings in emotional intelligence but he says that during his doctorate people told him that if you bring in indian religion nobody will give you a phd so he got rid of that it was basically uh, plagiarizing in a sense he's plagiarizing because he's not quoting the sources he's borrowing from sources he's dishonest not quoting them i've confronted him and now he started giving little bit of lip service once in a while but the the indians themselves don't know that the whole emotional quotient and emotional intelligence movement came out of indian thought if you know anything about sri aurobindo one of his models is called multiple planes and parts of being if you read his book uh, the life divine a major chapter is called planes and parts of being and he says that the being which means us in the inner being has many planes 
and many parts in each plane. And yoga consists of looking at all these planes and parts and unifying them. And that is really the essence of this whole Maslow's, Maslow came up with the Maslow pyramid, which is very famous. And this other guy came up with emotional intelligence, which is also very famous. But these are based on planes and parts of being. These are based on that. So the, the idea, uh, the ideas from India travel, they get uh, digested, uh, and so, uh, and then they get distorted, then they are exported back to us, and uh, some of them are actually causing us harm because they're not uh, authentic. So I have uh, a 10 volume, 10 volume book series planned, which is not complete, but I I'm going to publish it. So this is on, uh, on the history of digestion. So there's a volume on life sciences, on the, for example, botany. You, you would think that botany, what do we have to do with botany? You go to Harvard in the Rare Books Archive, I was shown a book in Dutch, which is considered the earliest work in uh, botany in Europe. And that book became very famous, was translated to all, all the European languages sometime in the 1600s. And this is a book quite well known. And Harvard has one of the original copies of this book. And in this book, when they are talking about different plants, they actually have a cutting of that plant's leaves stuck there. And then they're describing how it grows and what is its value and all that. So this is a book on botany, ancient, one of the earliest books in Western botany. But guess what? In, on the first page, this is what the guy showed me, and I don't know, didn't know the Dutch language, but he translated it for me, but they would not let me do a scan. I'm still looking to get a scan. In the very first page, it says, this is a translation of such and such book from Malayalam. This is what it says. This is what it says. So, you know, the whole origin of botany, because uh, the before the you know the, we all know there was a British East India Company and there was a French East India Company but many of you don't know that there was a Dutch East India Company there was a Danish East India Company and do you know there was a Swiss East India Company Swiss East India Company these didn't last they were not as powerful the other ones lasted so the head of the Dutch East India Company uh, the director of the East India Company his brother or brother-in-law was a botanist who was very interested in going to India and getting uh, knowledge out of the farmers. They were growing these herbs, these Ayurvedic people, getting knowledge from them, taking clippings. And there's a very famous botanical garden in Holland where they have, they have a plaque I've seen where it says that it is dedicated, it is started by this guy. This guy started, he was the head of the Dutch East India Company. He started this. So that's the origin of botany in Europe. And you have to know these things. So when I'm doing this 10 volume series on digestion, you know, there's a volume on life sciences. Another example of life sciences I'd give you, which is more modern. I was at this uh, seven star hotel, which is above Rishikesh. I don't know what his name is called, Ananda Spa. Ananda Spa. It's a huge, very luxury hotel. And I went with two American school teachers from Princeton Day School because we were funding a, a summer tour of India for religious studies people in, in Princeton Day School. My wife used to go as a chaperone. 
And we, they said that before we take students, we need, you need to take teachers and make sure it's okay. So I took two teachers and we went all over various spiritual places. On the way to Gangotri, we went, I went with these guys, uh, we spent some time staying at this Anand Spa, this really big resort. So we're doing this uh, Ayurveda massage, Ayurveda treatment, which is known for that. So I was having this Ayurveda treatment and this guy, who's the person doing the treatment, comes and says, sir, we are using Aveda. So I said, what is Aveda? He said, sir, it means Ayurveda, but Ayurveda is obsolete, now it is Aveda. This is what he's telling me. So I said, I never heard of it. So what is this, who is this Aveda? He says, Ayurveda, the Ayurvedic spa, we're doing Ayurveda only, but now Aveda is better. He's telling me that. So after my treatment's over, I went and talked to the manager and they said, yeah, we're selling Aveda products. They had all these Aveda products there. So I bought them in order to know who the heck is doing all this. This is a very early, this is like, uh, you know, many, a couple decades back. So I took all this, these uh, packages, I brought to the United States, looked up where are they, who are they. I found the Aveda company had been purchased by Estee Lauder for a very large sum of money. And now it's a multi-billion dollar, it's the largest brand selling plant products, herbal products for skin care, for you know these sort of things. It's, it's a huge brand. If women would know that you go, Aveda is a very big brand. But most people don't know that Aveda is Ayurveda. So then I looked at who started it. The story is that there were two Americans, they were hippies, and they used to go every year to India and meet their guru and do all that stuff. And one of them fell ill and some Ayurvedic doctor cured him. And he was very impressed. So in future trips, they would bring one suitcase full of Ayurvedic medicines to sell and recover their flight, their plane fare. They started as poor hippies, bringing Ayurvedic stuff, bootlegging it. And then they, it sold very well. Then they started importing. Then they started uh, repackaging it here with nice branding, Aveda branding. And uh, the first Aveda newsletter was just a four-page newsletter saying you can cure this, that. We have this Aveda product and it is from India, it's from the Himalayas, all that exotic stuff they were doing. So that is how Aveda started. Then they hired four Vaidyas, four, to come and teach them how to grow these herbs, how they are grown, how they are used. So these four Vaidyas came and actually there was an interaction between Maharishi, Maharishi's Vaidyas and uh, Aveda company, Aveda company trying to steal a lot of ideas from the Maharishi people also. So they were very clever in marketing. They re started uh, growing Kerala herbs in California. They bought a huge farm and they're growing uh, herbs and now it is belongs to them. They don't need India anymore. And they are per, per, come up with this great Aveda company. It's now a multi-billion dollar company. About 20 years ago, I was giving grants to uh, uh, Santa Barbara, University of California, Santa Barbara. And they were very proudly took me for a tour of this uh, uh, Ayurvedic farm. They said, you know, you'll be very proud. We are promoting Ayurveda. So I found that this huge Ayurvedic herbs were being grown by the Aveda company. So I said, why should I be proud? They've stolen our stuff. And you are saying we should be proud. They're not paying any royalty. They don't even acknowledge where it came from. Because they've stolen our stuff and they're growing it, uh, you are saying we should be proud. They said, no, no, you should be proud that we are popularizing your, your culture. Because if we call it Indian, nobody will buy it. If we call it American, they'll buy it. This he's telling me. 
so i wrote an article this way back i wrote an article that when uh, i think it was king george the 5th or one of those kings was asked why are you wearing the kohinoor he said the people of india should be very proud that the emperor has chosen their diamond to be worn on his head so that's the inferiority complex our people have that because the white guy has now taken over ayurveda now he's selling it we should be very proud we will thank him so these are the examples of the 10 volumes in digestion that i'm going to do there'll be volume on mathematics and astronomy there'll be volume on life sciences a volume on linguistics a volume on philosophy many of you probably don't know that uh, when you think of western philosophy they think of the big philosophers like uh, you know herder and kant and uh, uh, hegel but they learned a lot from indian thought that's a whole volume i have on the indian origins of western philosophy modern philosophy you know when they when they talk about uh, the uh, influences of india they really start very late they talk about british uh, orientalists and what they learned from india and brought it here to the western world what they do, what they do, don't discuss is much earlier when indian knowledge traveled to china much earlier than the european coming here jesuits from france were missionaries in china and they were bringing knowledge back from china which they called buddhist knowledge and that is acknowledged in their history but lot of this so called buddhist knowledge was actually vedic knowledge because what the chinese took was buddhist vedic it was all mixed up there was no separation between those days it was all the same what you learned in nalanda was vedic buddhist all this combined stuff that is what the chinese were taking and that is what the the jesuits were bringing back into into europe and repackaging it and it it, it was influencing western thought a lot of western thought uh, was uh, influenced in that way so you know these are the kind of uh, projects that i like to do and um, uh, now you can see that this would be controversial you can see that guy like me would be controversial to go to her benson at harvard and say this is maharishi mesh yogi's material appropriated to go to the center of uh, western philosophy at princeton university and say what you're teaching about hegel and kant you should acknowledge the indian sources and here i have proof they don't want to hear it in princeton university they were teaching a course called uh, history of universities and they start with uh, the european the, the greek alexandria and i said earlier than alexandria was takshashila earlier than that much earlier than that in fact it's written about so the professor says that i can only go with evidence i don't know you are telling me how do i know so i looked in the princeton university archive they have three volumes on the history of takshashila and the history of nalanda in their own library so i took it out and gave it to him and i said why don't you include this in your curriculum so you see this this only creates more enemies for me you create more people enemies they say let's get rid of this guy then there's a course on the history of political thought in princeton university woodrow wilson school very prestigious they've changed the woodrow wilson school name now so that school is one of the most prestigious teaching political thought so i said why don't you teach arthashastra which is one of the original origins of political thought in the world why don't you teach political thought as conveyed in the mahabharat 
because it's political thought, a lot of debate about these issues. They don't want to touch that as part of the history of knowledge and the history of ideas. In fact, the Arthashastra is also one of the original works on economics. It is not just political thoughts. You should know that. Arthashastra has the principles of economics. In fact, one guy, uh, Balbir Singh, or I, know, I forgot his name, I used to work with and interact with him at one time. He's written a book on the uh, Arthashastra and modern economics, doing a comparative study. So this type of, this is how you empower the next generation. You teach them the a lot, Indian contributions to the world is not just future, we will do it, and uh, today we are teaching yoga and all that. This is a very old story, and we have to collect the history of the world, and the history of India also we have to collect. Because when they are writing the history of India, they are only talking about how invaders come and they kill this guy and they conquer that guy. They are not talking about the export of Indian knowledge to all over the world. Then through the Arabs, mathematics goes to algebra, mathematics, geometry goes to Europe. They're not talking about it. So all this is the history of digestion that I, I, I was referring to. And you can see why 10 volumes is barely enough. Now, before I close, I want to give you, tell you a little bit about how the, uh, the people often say that the things you're writing are very fine research and all, but very few people will read it. You need to popularize it and so on. I understand that. But there are five levels of Infinity Foundation projects. We call them A, B, C, D, E. A, track A, is original research that I do. And I produce books, and I'm going to produce 20 more. That's my goal, produce a whole library of research. Track B is to train young students, young mentor, people are mentoring to continue this research. So now we are introducing two of the four books are written by my people I mentored. So uh, here, uh, this book, uh, 10 Heads of Ravan. There are 10 articles written by 10 different young scholars of Infinity Foundation. Ravan is a metaphor. <laughs> Ravan is a metaphor for, you know, a person who's against society and who's dangerous and who's, uh, uh, attacking our society, but this is a metaphor for modern, modern Ravan, uh, is the intellectual Ravan, and the ten heads are people like uh, Romila Thapar, people like uh, Irfan Habib, people like. Uh, so, so you have uh, Ramchandra Gua is one of the heads, uh, Shashi Tharoor is one of the heads. Um, So, and there are Americans, there's Wendy Doniger, there's Audrey Truske, there's Sheldon Pollock, these kind of people also. So, a year before, a year before COVID, we were having our annual retreat in Rishikesh, and I had done a, a two-minute animated cartoon on 10 heads of Ravan. I hired some uh, cartoonist, uh, animation guy, and he was, he put, he put Ravan with those 10 heads, and they were like car cartoon version of these people. And each head would pop up, and then he would say some nasty things about us. And then the next head would pop up and say some nasty things about us. And this uh, cartoon became very popular. So then the idea came, why don't we turn these into actual uh, a book? And so this is a book where each head of Ravan has been critiqued by one of our people. 
and we are they're learning to be a good scholar there's no insult allowed they're not allowed to become emotional they're not allowed to slander it's all about the work of that person they're basically saying this is what that person has written this is what he's famous for and this is what we our response is so it's a it's a very academic style response to these 10 people okay and in the introduction the only thing i've written is introduction to introduce and I've said that we honor these people as being so important that it's worth our while to criticize them. So you see, track A is I do the work, track B is I mentor others to do the work, and part of doing the work is they have to stand up and defend it. They have to stand up and talk about it. They have to face the anger and the opposition and people who make fun of them and bring them down and they have to stand their ground. This, the fact that our work is controversial because we are taking people out of their comfort zone, not that we are doing anything wrong or harmful, but we are just telling the truth, we are convinced of the truth, but people don't want to hear it for whatever reason, means that we must hold our ground. There is a fight or flight option. Either you run from, from controversy and people calling you names and so on, either you run or you stand your ground and fight. If you stand your ground and fight in such a situation, that is what we call intellectual kshatriyata. That is the definition of intellectual kshatriya. So these are 10 intellectual kshatriyas. Each of them has taken one topic, who is a world famous, powerful person, much more powerful than our scholar, who has got an old history, a lot of following, a lot of limelight, and our scholar is a nobody. And this nobody scholar has got the audacity and the scholarship, so they've each, all of them have taken three years. This, this book has been developed for three years, and we are going to launch it next month. <laughs> the other one is artificial intelligence. I wrote a book, and now the, a team of eight or nine people are writing The Power of Future Machines. That is different articles. I've only written the introduction. So I'm trying to tell you that this vision of track B is coming to fruition. And we are also having conferences called Swadeshi Indology Conference, where we bring in other people to come and speak to continue the work. So each of my books gets turned into a conference. And based on the conference, other people write other work on it. And we turn it into videos and documentaries so that it, it is not just my work. I may have started something, but other people take it over. It's their work also. That's track B. Track C is we are turning this knowledge into online courses, e-learning, online animated courses. So we are developing videos and making courses. So the, the book, uh, Being Different, which became a big hit a dozen years ago, many of you know about it. You can probably get copies of it here. That has become a course which many tens of thousands of people have already taken, and now we are making courses on the other books. So that's track C. For people who want to read a big book, they want to take a course. Track D is when we go into take this knowledge into even simpler forms, like we have two minute videos on Twitter, hundreds of them, two minute, two minutes each. Uh, Snakes in the Ganga, we got uh, 50, 60 videos on that already, little two minute videos each, giving a very sharp, strong, one month point, one month point in two minutes. And then we are in, uh, also getting very active in, so we have very active in social media. That is track D, which means popular level. People who are not going to read, but they like to be in social media. How do we get the messages out to social media? And then track E is I'm training intellectual kshatriya workshops and giving them a certificate that, okay, you become intellectual kshatriya. 
So uh, the first one, the first intellectual Kshatriya conference uh, uh, workshop was uh, conducted in Toronto many years ago. And then uh, somebody from Ramakrishna Mission actually in uh, Bangalore invited us to be, uh, to conduct a workshop. We conducted a workshop there. So we are often going around conducting workshops to train young people how to think like us. So the idea is that I'll be gone, but through this A, B, C, D, E uh, system, we'll create a whole, uh, you know, future, uh, future generation. Uh, we will have a body of knowledge uh, for them. We'll have trained these people and we'll have built an institution. So that is, that is the vision of Infinity Foundation. So when you ask, when somebody asks, are you going to, willing to fund, which somebody will later on, that is the funding we need. None of that funding is for me. Thank God I don't need any funding. I don't draw any salary, don't make any money out of it. Every year, in fact, we're giving. But I'm okay. However, these young people for the next generation need to be paid. They need to be paid. And the funding is entirely for those kind of expenses. I will give you, before concluding, I want to give you a few examples of high impact that we've had. I told you about the mind sciences and the IIT Kharagpur, I gave you that example and so on. But I will tell you some very big impacts we've had because people want to know how does writing books make a difference. You know, in the Hindu tradition, there's no Pope, but we have the, we have the Shankaracharya Mats. And the leading one is Shingeri. The one in Shingeri is considered the leading one and the one in Kanchi. So, some years ago, a very dear friend of mine, very innocently and naively, told me that he's part of fundraising in Columbia University to uh, become the center for teaching Shankaracharya in the Western world. And everybody like, wow, they'll teach Shankaracharya. But you know, I don't accept anything unless I've read the details. So I wanted to read the details, and the details were that Sheldon Pollock will be appointed chair and it will be his decision who he appoints, what they teach, who the scholars are. And Sheldon Pollock, I know, he's a diehard ultra-Marxist. And his idea of Sanskrit is completely the opposite of the spirituality that we think Sanskrit is. He thinks Sanskrit is full of social abuse, abuse against women. His view on Ramayana is it's a social abuse system. And uh, these, all these mantra is mumbo jumbo and you know, uh, all kind of brainwashing. So he's, he's a learned man, but like even Ravana was learned man. You know, you can be learned, but learned in a strange way. So I, I said, I don't support this. And I started meeting Sheldon Pollock to tell him very openly that I have problems with you. So Sheldon Pollock came to Princeton to see me. We had a morning br breakfast and coffee together. And then he invited me to New York. I went to New York to see him. We had several meetings. And I was very open. I'm writing this book and I'm going to critique you. But I want to know what your views are. So he said, I have spent so many decades entirely dedicated to writing on Sanskrit. How could I hate if I'm spending my whole life? So I said, you know, a biologist who's studying a particular bacteria all his life does not want to help it. He wants to kill it, but he has to study it. And I said that you send your spies to study the other side, not because you love them, but you want to understand how to compromise them. 
and the Europeans sent all these scholars and anthropologists to study, go to, even now these guys go to Marxists and Maoists and missionaries, they go to villages to study them, to find out how they were vulnerable. So the, the fact that you studied all your life is not, you have to look at the content you've produced. Uh, he, he was shocked because no Indian ever, he thought that this will floor a person because every time there is a doubt, he stands up and says, I learned it under this teacher, I went to this university, I studied Sanskrit and I stayed so many years and I wear my dhoti and he's got a tilak and all that stuff and every Indian is floored. I was the first guy who told him that this is bullshit, it doesn't mean anything. We can tell you that. India abroad had, a, had made him the India, uh, man of the year. There's a special issue from India abroad. I have a copy of it, I'll show it to you. He was man of the year, given the award by India award, uh, abroad as sort of the, the big hero of the year because look at this man, he writes books on Sanskrit. And they had a picture of him at the Shingeri ashram wearing a dhoti and all that stuff, okay? So now imagine how hard my job is to take on a guy like that. When our own millionaires and multimillionaires and billionaires in, in New York, some of them very dear friends, have put out a multi-million dollar project to put chairs with this guy in charge. And I'm the one man saying, don't do it. So here is what, the, what happened. I tried to convince my friends, they're not interested because you, who are you? This guy is famous, he's Columbia University, the dean likes him, the vice chancellor, all these guys like him, who are you? That kind of an attitude. And I'm saying, well, basically I have facts. Read my facts. Nobody has time to read the facts. So I started sending messages to uh, Shankaracharya, but they were intercepted. Because they had written an MOU, Columbia University had signed an MOU with the Shankaracharya Mutt in Shingeri to start these chairs. In the next 90 days, it was going to happen. They were going to have a very big announcement in New York and they were going to announce uh, Sheldon Pollock, all this thing would happen, then it would be too late. So I had to 90 days to interfere. So I told some friends who said, oh yeah, I know Shankaracharya, I'll send you their message, but none of that worked. And I was giving up because I was writing publicly and getting hit for writing all this and no response from the Shingeri Mutt. And I thought maybe they sold out. Then I got a call from a very dear friend whom I owe a lot, uh, Rama Shankar. She's been a supporter of ours. She lived in, lives in Chicago. She says, I can get you a secret meeting with the Shankaracharya personally. So I said, how? So she said, my late father was the administrative head of the mutt. There are two leaders in the mutt. One is a spiritual leader. He is the one who he is the Shankaracharya. And the other is the administrative leader. He is the bureaucratic leader. He does all the contracts, the payroll, the funding, like that. So her father was the administrative head before the current one. And she says, I can also give you some inside information that the current administrative head is the one who signed this MOU and he's blocking all your emails and messages. So he's blocking them but you need to bypass him and go to the Shankaracharya, present your case. He doesn't meet too many people. He meets them only for 15 minutes, but you have to present your case. So I dropped everything, time is running out. So I went to Bangalore. Her nephew was some guy in charge in the Bangalore airport. 
he organized a van and it's a 10 hour drive in the middle of the night this is through a jungle and they have this leopard or cheetah or something like that they have wildlife they have, they have elephants there very exciting all night journey to go to shingeri and she said and she said don't stay near the mutt because he knows he's got his people and he know you you stay a little bit away in a private hotel totally incognito and then she told me that next morning don't go through the main gate you go through a back door she, she knew shankaracharya's brother who was a friend of theirs family he will receive me he will take me privately to shankaracharya's room without the administrator being involved because he'll eliminate you he will cut you out so i did all that i went with one other person and we went there sure enough exactly as this as she had told us we went to this side thing there was this man sitting there very humble we had chai with him he said i'll take you to the shankaracharya he took me to the shankaracharya and shankaracharya and i had a meeting but guess what the administrator who was the fellow causing all the problem was also sitting there so when i was talking to shankaracharya he would keep interfering so i would say to shankaracharya i have come all the way to to discuss something very important about the legacy of this place which is at risk so he didn't know about any of this the mou had been signed without his knowledge he did not know this they had done this deal without his knowledge so you know india is full of people our own people betraying some people betrayed when the muslims came some betrayed when the british came our own this was an inside job by this guy so i know that adi shankara was very famous for doing what he called purva paksha which means you must study the opposing point of view before you give a response you must study the opposing point of view before you have a meeting with him before you say anything about him you must study his work and the current shankaracharya is famous as is famous for purva paksha he picked up that whole purva paksha from the adi shankara tradition and he is supposed to be an expert so i knew that i have to use the right words so i said there is an mou with sheldon pollock to take to give him the authority in the western world to represent adi shankara has any of your persons done purva paksha on sheldon pollock and when i used that word he said he looked at gauri shankar and said have you done purva paksha and that guy was quiet i said nobody from this organization has done purva paksha with the man and you are doing an mou with him and that is wrong so then i said i just need a pause don't go and let this thing happen in 90 days give me some time i'm writing a 100 page report doing my purva paksha on sheldon pollock i'll give you my purva paksha and you can be the judge adjudicate you can call him and me and we'll have a debate which is exactly what adi shankara what you used to do have a debate with a neutral moderator or neutral judge and i said to shankaracharya ji you be the judge and i will have a debate with him and because i feel that he's dangerous he's misrepresenting the tradition he's very wrong and we should not be doing this so he just told the he didn't promise anything but he told uh, adi this guy gauri shankar not to proceed and he'll look into it so i knew that this is very good for me so in 2 uh, 3 uh, months uh, my 90 my 100 page report had now become much bigger 
and I needed more time. So I sent through the same channel, I sent a draft and said, this is what I've written so far. Here is the executive summary because he reads English. He reads English, he knows Hindi, he knows Sanskrit, very, very intelligent man. So I said, this is my finding, but I have more to say, but give me a little more time. So like that, I kept asking for more and more time and I produced a 450 page book called The Battle for Sanskrit on this very issue. So, so the Shankaracharya decided to cancel that deal. The deal's canceled. So you can see, you can see all the hatred and some of my friends because you know, it was very prestigious. They would all give money, they would be with the, this committee and that board, they would be on Columbia University and through that they would have so many appointments and everybody would know them. It's all for Shan, Shokat, showing off ego, throw your money around, all that nonsense our people are into. And I'm alone fighting all this and it is very unpopular. And when you are doing these things very unpopular, you're going to become controversial. So being controversial, you cannot avoid. So I have so many examples I could get into the impact we've made, but I will, I know everybody's hungry probably. So let me give you one more example, which is this book called The Battle for IITs. Where is it? Here. Now, in the book, Snakes in the Ganga, you know, I, very, very detailed theory of what the latest the risks are, with latest threats. Previously, I wrote about Breaking India, but now this is Breaking India 2.0. And that book you can read, it'll tell you. Don't be, by the way, scared of the size, because if you read the introduction, which is 40, 50 pages, then you read a one-page summary of every chapter, then you will get the idea. In less than 100 pages, you will get the idea. The rest of the book is evidence to support. But if you want to know what's the idea, the thesis, you will get it in 100 pages. So when I wrote this book, one of the chapters, chapter four, is what we call Battle for IITs. It and now we've expanded that into a whole book. That basically says there is an attack on IITs by this ultra-left, wokest people in Harvard, who've made the case that Harvard, that IIT is all upper caste oppressing the lower caste. It is all Hindus oppressing Muslims. It is all majority oppressing minority. And it is transmit, it is continuing the, the elitism of India, the Hindu elitism of India into the next generation. And they are producing engineers who are mainly these upper caste Hindu type people, and they are excluding the others. And this is a form of oppression. This whole structure should be dismantled. So there's a there's a anthropology philosopher, a professor in called Ajanta Subramaniam, herself a Brahmin, uh, at Harvard, fully tenured. She written this book, published by Harvard University Press. So it became viral. Everybody in Harvard teaching courses on it because after all, a professor from great university, Harvard University Press must be correct all over the United States and Europe, they're teaching this book on, you know, a case study of casteism. And then this guy, Sura Yengde, a Dalit scholar who's at Harvard Kennedy School, teams up and he begins to talk all about the, the history of atrocities and he's, made, he's become a big poster boy for Harvard, really taking this issue. 
and he's now being he's now a consultant for the, all the American think tanks, for the U.S. State Department, for the Commission on Religious Freedom, for all their foreign policy, all that he's sort of the sought after consultant because Harvard guy. And then there is something called uh, Equality Labs in New York, run by one Sondarya Rajan, and they are into a lot of anti-Hindu activism. They took this idea and they started, they claimed that they've done a survey in Silicon Valley of Indian tech workers who come from IITs and they found that there are a lot of uh, atrocities against the Dalit engineers by the Brahmin engineers. So this they feel is wrong and should be, legal action should be taken. And then someone called Wilkerson, an African-American herself, they took her to India to do research with the Ambedkarites and she came back and wrote this book on, which basically became a bestseller, New York Times number one bestseller. She's also won the Pulitzer Prize and uh, she was paraded all over, you know, Oprah and everything. And the book basically says that caste is the origin of racism. Not only caste is same as racism, but caste originated the racism in America. Because she says, her argument is, that when the British went to India, they studied Sanskrit, they became very fond of Sanskrit. And in the study of Sanskrit, they learned about racism through the caste. They learned how to bring down the lower caste through Sanskrit. Uh, uh, you know, you exclude them from knowledge. You only allow Brahmins to have the knowledge. You don't allow these guys, Chudras and others to have knowledge. And so this idea of oppression and how to, how to deny them human rights starts with Sanskrit and Shastras. And they, these British, when they came to America, they started applying this lens and this framework to have prejudice against blacks as if they never had any prejudice before. And so that is the caste influence on American racism. This is the idea. And then she says that Hitler got this from the British, from the British also. And so Hitler's Holocaust and all that is also of Indian origin. So this is her thesis, pretty dangerous. So you combine an African-American who writes this with uh, uh, the Harvard professor who's, who says, I, 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 I mean, IIT is full of this casteism business. And this uh, Suraj Yengde in the Kennedy School who says that the, one of his quotes that we have is that in 10 years, the Brahmins have killed 500,000 Dalits in India, murdered 500,000, murdered and raped 500,000. I mean, how you got these numbers, there's no evidence given, but he's a Harvard man, so people believe whatever he says. And then there is this uh, Sondere Rajan who does the research, claims to have done the research, factual data gathering, based on which she gets quoted, there must be 30, 40, 50 newspaper articles Washington Post and Wall Street Journal, everybody quoting her survey, saying, wow, she's discovered this new thing, which how horrible. Indians are bringing their caste racism into America. And they're products of IIT, and they're bringing it into Silicon Valley. So then to cap, our, cap this whole thing, they filed a lawsuit against Cisco. Uh, they filed a lawsuit against Cisco, saying that uh, Dalits are being uh, prejudiced by, they're prejudiced against the Dalit workers because of uh, Brahmins. And the Brahmin they named is an IIT man, whom I know, I've talked to him. So he really in trouble. He's gone into hiding or something. So Cisco defended the case, but you know, this, this is just a precedence. This kind of thing will go further. And now there are 
caste sensitivity workshops being taught in Microsoft, in Apple, in Amazon, etc., in Facebook. So I get calls from Indian tech workers in these companies in Silicon Valley saying, please come and help us because we don't know how to respond. We are being required to sit in workshops where these people come, Sandhya Rajan and Sura Jengde, and they come and they go on talking about how horrible is caste and Hinduism is full of caste and this all comes from Vedic literature and all that. And this is why there was this dismantling Hindutva conference. It, this is the origin of that. It is not enough to fight. You have to know where it comes from. What is the root cause? This is the root cause of that. all of these kind of things that have been happening in the last few years. So we have uncovered something very new. And that is why we wrote the book Snakes in the Ganga to tell you all this. So I went to Bay Area and I talked, mentioned all this to Silicon Valley people. And they, they're all scared. They all, nobody has come out publicly. I said, shame on you. You are the IITians. I'm not an IITian. I'm defending you. But you're not defending yourself. And they're all into, the ones who are very rich don't want to stick their neck out because, you know, it's too risky. They made their money. Why should they, why should they fight? And the ones who are not rich tend to be junior and they're scared. They are on H-1B visa. They might be deported. They might be fired. So I was hosted for a lunch off the record by Google people. A whole lot of Google Indian engineers, they came and said, we'd like to have a lunch with you privately. So they took me to some restaurant and we had a nice brainstorm for a whole afternoon. And they told me a lot of stuff what's going on in, in their company and other companies. They didn't want to be named, so I don't want to name them. So this all went on. Then I found some uh, venture capitalists with IIT background wanting to help me. So I said, I'm going to write this book which will take the matter in more detail. And this book is about 170 pages, so it's not that big. And I need sponsorship, I need help. So they said, okay, we'll look into that. Then I found a, a group of IITians in Washington, DC, wanting to help. And Shashiji was kind enough, he went there, we had a fundraiser. So the IITians in, uh, ex-IITians in Washington, DC have made a group to help us. So the, this book, uh, Battle for IITs, the back cover has a huge endorsement from Ron Gupta, who is the president of Pan IIT USA, which is the organization of all the alumni. He's given the endorsement. So that's a, that's a big impact we've made. Uh, it's not just writing some book somewhere, but we've woken up the IIT worldwide organization. And uh, they, uh, they have now, uh, the next week we are going to edit that video. We had a private dinner and they're all making very interesting statements and Q&A. So we, we are going to put that up online. And they've told me that they'll put it up on their website. So it'll get more publicity. They're also doing a review of this book, Snakes in the Ganga. And when that review comes out, they'll promote it in their newsletter to all the IITians worldwide. And in September, uh, they are hosting a conference in Washington, bringing all the Pan-IIT people, all the leaders of all the IITs, and they want our book to be featured as the main theme of the conference. So this is... So, so, um, so I, I could go on and give you a lot of examples of uh, impact, but I think time has run out. So the, to, to, to just conclude with where are we now, what are we doing? We finished a five-week 
tour for snakes in the Ganga in India. We had about 25, 26 events all over. One of them was in IIT Madras. And we made a very nice video of IIT Madras faculty, uh, very surprised at what the attack is, but very supportive of my view. And they have come out very strong supporting me and against this whole Harvard mischief. And that's a video you should watch. It's about one hour long. And uh, many other interesting things happen. Then we went to Canada for five days. Then we went to Boston. One of the events I had was in Harvard University Faculty Club in Boston with one of their senior professors having an exchange with him. And this man supported me. He said, yes, Harvard has this problem because this liberal arts is very left wing and they are, they are known to be like this. So he was quite open because he's not part of the group that I'm criticizing. They have their own politics, you know. You, you want to criticize these people from Harvard, you get those people on your side. That's how divide and rule works for us also. So we have to learn how to use it also. So then I went to Bay Area and so on. And uh, uh, now we are here. Uh, next month on the 14th, I'm 14th of February, my, myself, Vishwajit, uh, who's our video head, some others, we are going to India for 35 days to launch four new books. Four new books we're launching. So I told you about this battle for IITs. I told you about the Ravana book and the power of future machines. So now let me tell you, there is this book called Varna Jati Caste. This is a primer on the history of Indian social structures because there's so much nonsense, so much abuse, and our people get emotional or they give some little thing from here and there, but this is a book that 165 pages, everybody can read, it's very easy to read, written, it's for parents, it's for school children, it's for teachers, it's for everybody who is in Hindu society ought to have a copy of this, and it is just 250 rupees, so by the time it comes here, it'll be like seven, eight, nine dollars or whatever it is, because we have to pay for air freight and whatnot, so maybe $10. So it's a very affordable book, very readable book. We, everybody should read it. And this is written so that we are putting all the evidence together to counter the negative propaganda. And we are not chauvinistic. We are not saying we are a perfect society. We are not saying we have no flaws. We do have flaws, but so do other societies have flaws. But we also have solutions. And we want our problems to be taken in the context and not overdone. So I think I'm being reminded that lunch is going to be served. And uh, uh, thank you very, very much for listening. And I'll be happy to take question and answers. Jai Hind. very much, Vibhutiji, um, thank you very much, Devendraji and the organizers. I know that after this very scintillating evening, uh, your mind is more on the lunch than on me. So I'm going to take, make it very, 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 very short. Uh, uh, this critical race theory, or the wokeism, as Rajivji has explained, I'm not going to go into what it is, but all that I can tell you is, that this is like coronavirus, it is morphing into different variants. You see that in not only in academia, you see that in the public, civil society public discourse, 
you see that in public policies, you see that in the judiciary, and now in the corporate world, finally, finally, it has also now traveled to the international organizations. And that is what I represent, that I worked in the World Bank and the United Nations for almost three decades. And I, have, I saw it up close. November 2021, I saw an announcement on caste and development. And I was quite intrigued. This was a COVID time. And the World Bank, World Bank people are very passionate, very dedicated, very committed about alleviating poverty and, and in the field of development. So at any point of time in the World Bank, you'll see some very uh, uh, exotic type of topics being discussed, exotic speakers coming. No speak, no topic is a taboo, no speaker is a taboo in the World Bank. So I thought this must be one of those. But what I found intriguing was the issue of caste and development. This speaker series and the training program was organized by the World Bank's Information Technology Department. Not by the social development, not by the economic development, but by the IT. So I was a bit intrigued. So I said, who are the people who are giving this training? And it was Equality Labs. I had never heard of them before. So I did some research. When I did the research, I was appalled at what they had been doing and who were funding them. And then I thought, if the World Bank is going to look at discrimination as a determinant of development, meaning that the discrimination influences, affects not only the economic development, but also the distribution of that benefit to the people, then obviously we should look at all kinds of uh, discrimination. Discrimination is not just in caste. There's all kinds of discrimination. It's a religious discrimination, it is ethnic discrimination, it is class discrimination, it is the political affiliation and the family affiliation discriminant, uh, ethnic uh, discrimination. So I thought, why is the bank looking only at caste? Is there something behind that? So therefore, I wrote to this vice president, who was an old friend of mine, and I also copied it to all the board of directors. Bank has board of directors, which represents 183 countries. So therefore, I wrote to all the board of directors, saying that this is double standard. You should look at all the issues of discrimination, whether it is the developing country, or whether it's the developed countries, whether it is the indigenous people in Canada whose graves are still being discovered, or it is Maoris and, and Aborigines in Australia, or it is the Native Americans right here in the US who have been exterminated, whether it is Yazdis and Kurdish in Iran and Iraq and Middle East, which I used to deal with having worked in the bank and the UN, or whether it is the persecution of Hindu, Sikhs and Christians which is almost Holocaust. It is the Holocaust proportion in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Bangladesh, which nobody is talking about. We are not talking about, why would we expect others to talk about? Uyghurs in China, the international organizations don't even have courage to open their mouth and talk about it. So therefore, I wrote to the board of directors saying that this is double standards. I got no response, but what happened was that in the very first program, I saw the Chinese executive director had sent a senior advisor to the program. They are more aware of the Swayam Bodh and the Shatru Bodh than we are. He was there. So that means it had been taken, taken uh, note of. Okay. Uh, let me just cut it short because now it, we are running short of time. All that I want to tell you is that once the World Bank picks up something like this, 
that then travels to other international organizations. It travels to the corporates that work with the World Bank. And then other uh, organizations like Asian Development Bank, European Bank for Reconstruction Development, Inter-American Development Bank, all of these financial institutions will pick up that. And then what happens? It becomes a framework. It becomes a new framework for the hegemony of the developed countries and for imposing some of these, uh, these, these, these policies onto the developing countries, the borrowing countries. Some borrowing countries cannot resist it because they are too weak, too vulnerable. But countries like India and China are not going to accept that. So therefore, you can see how very quietly these frameworks are created. And that is what is really happening in the international organizations. To conclude, I would say don't look at this as some esoteric academic discussion. It's not an esoteric academic discussion. This is a train which is coming down the track and is coming down very, very fast. Be aware of that. Read the books, equip yourself, teach your children, debate about it, and best of all, as Vibhutiji said, in information and intellectual understanding and rationalization is a good starting point. But then you also have to act. You have to decide as to what steps are you going to take. Time to act is now. Failure is not an option. And all that I would try to do is evoke the imagery of Mahabharat, where Lord Krishna is standing in the middle of the battlefield, telling Arjuna to stand up and fight. Rajivji is in the middle of the field of Mahabharat. And he's telling you, all of you Arjunas, in this room, you are all Arjunas. Listen to Krishna and pick up your Gandiv. This is a time to stand up and fight. Join him. This is a battle of existence. This is a battle you will not get a second chance at. Rise up now. Support him in that. Thank you. So the first question, Rajivji, is, uh, you know, in the beginning, you talked about breaking India. You talked about the basic fabric of outside agents destroying the credibility and undermining Indian civilization. One of the things that has happened is our gurus are being attacked. And, uh, you know, either being put behind bars or thrown mud, mud at it. Now, what is the strategy by which the uh, opposite side is working on that? And what is our counter? How can we counter that? That's the first question. So the question is, gurus are attacked and what should be done about it? I hate to say this, but you know, the gurus also take some blame because the gurus, while teaching Gyan, have not been teaching Kshatriyata. Not only the gurus have not been teaching Kshatriyata, they have not been encouraging and supporting people like us who are doing that. So, you know, in the old days, I mean, gurus would teach, mentor, advise the warriors, the Kshatriyas. After all, Dronacharya was a guru and he is training all these guys. But where are the today's Dronacharya gurus? I mean, they are teaching, teaching how to get moksha. Moksha Gyan is one of the Gyans. But you have to, you have to also live like a householder. You have to live like a Kshatriya. You have to live like a Vaishya. There's many kinds of capacities and contexts in which people live. So gurus have to understand that if they avoid controversy and they avoid responsibility by saying, I'll only look after my business. My business is to teach this particular topic and make and be successful. I don't want to stick my neck out for the rest of society. 
if the gurus feel that way then when they are attacked who's going to defend them so i think gurus need to start playing a bigger role than just a limited teaching that they have been doing that i think is the best strategy because gurus have the resources they have the credibility and they have to up the game great thank you the second question is i'm going to combine two questions together um how should temples in the us as well as indian americans hindu americans should counter the wokeism that you talk about and hindu phobia uh in particularly in the bal vihar programs so how do you, you you talk about adults but then how do you get this to the bal vihar type of setups so you know we have for 30 years offered our services to come and conduct classes in temples and the point is that they they see it as a kind of a non revenue producing activity the temples like to in have activities which produce revenue which means devotion bhakti so you know during a certain festival they will have a lot of uh, uh, emphasis because people come and give a lot of money nobody is going to give money to learn these things people have a hard time buying a book or giving a donation but if it were if we had a devati deva devi here and we said come and give money they would be a lot more money for that so people are more into giving for bhakti than to giving for knowledge and so the temples have not picked up knowledge dissemination as a part of their portfolio because there is no money to be made so the temple need to learn that they have a responsibility to do things which are not about getting more donations but which are a part of their responsibility they have to learn to do that yeah thank you now this question actually i have combined three questions together is on varna jati caste this whole thing that you're talking about um so the idea is someone saying well how can vedic framework unify hindu society because for many years we've been accused of casteism that as part one but related to that is there are a lot of there's this idea that shudras are always poor and they have been uh, discriminated against by the brahmins but there were a lot of shudra kings so where does your book talk about that yeah the book talks about that the book talks about a lot more uh, you should read this varna jati caste it's going to come out next month and we'll have thousands of copies brought to the us so we talk about the seven phases of history from the vedic phase the itihasic phase the dharma shastra phase the islamic phase the european rule phase and so on and each phase we discuss what is the state of affairs of indian society indian social structure and what are and this whole business of shudra dynasty shudra kings is all part of that great now the current leadership of india whether it's the current government or the infrastructure do you think that they are capable or are able to clean the snakes in the ganga no not at all because i think they are increasing more snakes in the ganga right just now in the last month the bjp government announced that they are going to invite these uh, iv leagues from the west to set up campuses in india so that more snakes can be bred in india itself you won't have to go to harvard to get your degree and get the poison from the snakes because the snakes are coming to india and the indian government is doing it they are doing it because the infiltration in the indian policy making is so serious the infiltration in niti ayog is very serious in the ministries it's very serious in the corporate sector it's very serious so the poison has already spread as the gentleman said before the it's like covid keeps mutating and so this poison is mutating and is spread into every segment of civic society in india it hasn't spread into military thank heavens but maybe it will go get there next 
it has it so the indian government is not so it's not so easy for the government to get rid of these kind of things got it thank you now i have two more questions the last second to last question is about younger people so there are people who are saying that basically our gurukul system used to impart knowledge prepare future you know like gurus do used to do right now what do we do with young population now which is college students high school students and young professionals how do you equip them like with the snakes in the ganga type of knowledge to fight back so i think this is the role for organizations like hindu student council it is a role for uh, groups like uh, you know the bal vihar of chinmay mission they need to expand the curriculum beyond just teaching gita they because these people learn gita and then they are sitting in school and somebody makes fun of their tradition and they don't know what to say and so the uh, knowledge should be not only how to be a hindu privately but how to be a hindu socially and publicly because if you are hiding from your identity in front of friends and uh, other people then you are not going to be practicing your dharma you have to be confident enough publicly and the various gurus and various organizations are not teaching how to face the issues and confront them confidently in the public that teaching is not happening okay next the last question is a two part question first part is someone wants to say uh, is there plan to translate into regional languages the stakes in the ganga uh, and how can people support that someone can said that they want to fund translations so you know we have a hindi translation team we need funding for that we have four people in the team in india and they are translating will take them a long time to, to translate one book at a time and so on and there are people who like to translate we have translated several of our books into tamil uh, into kannada uh, uh, and and into gujarati one or two books so the translation cost money everybody says why don't you do this why don't you do that well why don't you put your money where your mouth is you write us a check of enough takes a lot of effort to translate a book uh, it looks simple but very few people have a good translation capability one of the best books translated by us for us was done by devendra singh yeah devendra singh translated uh, uh, being different and that became vibhunta that one of the best translations each one of these translations takes 3 years of work and then you have to verify it and test it and typeset it and tra translate the, the documents the I mean the diagrams so it's not a very simple job and you need to put money that is what we need the investment for great and the final question is this is from someone who is young as well how do they get involved the young people if you want to be a volunteer you write to us and say this is my credential this is how much time i can give as a volunteer and we will turn you over to somebody called divya reddy in bangalore she manages all the young volunteers worldwide and they'll give you work to do they'll nurture you they mentor you once in a while we'll have video conferences so there's a whole program but it's up to you if you're a serious volunteer contact us and then we'll put you in touch with the right people thank you very much thank you rajiv ji uh, there are many questions and i'm sure we can go on for a long time but we're running short on time so what we're going to do next is the book signing i like to give thanks first of all to ishwar actually not thanks i think we should be indebted to him that we were uh, able to do this function second thanks should go to rajiv malhotra ji who has uh, mesmerized us with his wisdom and all the hard work that he is doing for last 30 years shashi ji came from dallas vibhuti ji came from long island to do our uh, master of ceremony uh, program 
and also my colleagues who had faith in me that uh, all I did is like stoke their passion. And after that, uh, all the work was done.